Hallelujah. Fathers, we have sung this day. Truly, our identity is in Jesus Christ alone. Without you, O Lord, we are lost and broken without hope in this world and surely deserving of hell itself as the consequences of our transgressions of your holy law. But with Jesus Christ, our Lord, who died in our place, those who are in him are counted worthy of populating the realms of glory, of entering into your presence, the coal of your atoning work having touched the lips of our sin, cleansing us from unrighteousness, and granting to us by your sovereign imputation the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are thus rendered worthy of fellowship, covenant meal, relationship with the Holy God. This day, Lord, as we see the background, the forebearers of our faith, who lived by their very lives a testimony to these things, I pray that you would open our eyes to the beauty and glories of salvation in new ways. Help us to understand the profound and powerful message of your Holy Scripture that spoke in so many ways, not just through the prophets of old, but prophetically through the patriarchs as well, of the great salvation to be revealed in Jesus Christ. As we explore the history of our own faith, going all the way back thousands of years, I pray that it would give us grace and strength and endurance and faith for the future that you have yet laid out before us. That one day the work that was begun before time itself will play itself out in history unto the praise of your great name, ransoming yourself, a people, from the fullness of time to the fullness of glory, forever to worship you without end. Lord, as a small foretaste of this beautiful future we have, I pray that you would bless and anoint our time together so we might have a deeper appreciation, a stronger confidence, and a bolder witness of the power and glory of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a blessing and privilege it is to gather with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we the family of God, bought by the precious, expensive gift of Jesus Christ's own blood, gather this day to worship His name and to set our attention on the priority and power of His gospel as it is revealed in His holy word. This morning, would you join me in turning in your scriptures to Genesis 26 as we consider the greater portion of the chapter, verses 6 through 35, and along with it, the continuing biography and legacy of Isaac, the son of Abraham, continuing the covenant line according to God's purposes to reveal His promises and prophecy in due course unto the coming of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, to come, if you will. The aim of this morning's message is to feature the grace of God in spite of the frailty of His servants. This is a truth that we see demonstrated in Abraham's experience as well as Isaac. The grace of God is often shines more brightly, set against the dark backdrop, if you will, of our own sin. In Isaac's case, among his sins is small faith and repeating the sins of the fathers. Nevertheless, the grace of God in appearing to him twice, even in this chapter, shines all the more brightly. Now, this chapter could be organized, may I suggest, around four themes or three themes. I'm going to consolidate two of them. There are also the names for wells that Jacob, I'm sorry, that Isaac and his servants dug. Hence the title, A Tale of Four Wells. These four wells have significant names that I submit to you are milestone markers and also serve as themes for God's providence and purposes in the work and legacy of Isaac. May I ask you to stand out of reverence one more time for the reading of God's word this morning? As we follow the pattern in Scripture of Nehemiah 9, where they stood for the reading of God's Scriptures, so we do the same today as we set our attention upon His authoritative truth. This is Genesis 26, 6 through the end of the chapter. Hang on for the story and the ride as we continue. Verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Verse 10, Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned, 
all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Verse 12. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, you are much mightier than we. So Isaac, verse 17, departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names of his fa- that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, "The water is ours." So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also. So he called the name Sitna. And then they moved from there and dug another well, and they were and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, "For now the Lord has made room for us." and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Verse 26, when Abimelech went to him, from Gerar, with the Huzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you or done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose up early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well. They had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Verse 34, When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith the daughter of Berai, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I appreciate your endurance in listening to a longer section of God's word this morning, which allows us a perspective of the unfolding legacy and story of Isaac. It's sort of a summary, a biography in just one chapter, a brief note of context. You'll notice that in the case of Abraham, Many chapters, comparatively, are given to document his story. But Isaac is a more condensed version. It's summarized in, uh, mostly in chapter 26. There's some events in Isaac's life and his children that are given to us in uh, chapter 25. And there's some follow-up in chapter 27. But suffice it to say, outside of these three chapters, we don't know much more about Isaac than what is recorded here. However, what's recorded is indeed significant. The duration of Isaac's stay in Gerar mirrors the experiences and growing influence of Abraham who preceded him. And you may have noticed this. If you're familiar with the text, if you've been following along in our series, it's almost like deja vu, right? Abraham goes to Gerar as well. Another king there, or the same one, we're not sure, named Abimelech, greets him. There's animosity and conflict. Abraham responds in fear. Eventually meet with Phicol, same name again. A commander of the army, eventually there's a treaty and so forth. You see, like father, like son, these patterns are continuing. In Genesis 20, Abraham enters Gerar as a timid sojourner, only to witness the tables turn as God prospers him and the inhabitants increasingly recognize that he is, quote, a prince of God among them. Chapter 23, verse 6, the Hittites confess as much. What made all the difference? We'll talk about that later. We've mentioned it before. Something changed in the experience of Abraham to turn him from a timid sojourner to considered a prince of God among the foreign peoples. What was it? This, 
a prince of God among them, is the confession of the Hittites in chapter 23, as you recall, as Abraham engages in negotiations for a burial plot for Sarah. This burial plot was the only piece of property that he laid tangible claim. It's the only deed that he could physically produce. In Canaan, though this whole land was promised to him and his descendants at the time of his death. And now in our chapter today and those surrounding it, we see his, Abraham's legacy, continuing through Isaac in the next generation, including both his weaknesses and strengths. The legacy of Abraham, his tendency towards sin, is also reflected in the experience, the decisions, and the frailties of Isaac, his own sins. Uh, likewise, though, his strengths God revealing himself to him and the repentance is also evident. Just as Abraham's journey was marked by unfolding events between altar-worthy visitations, so Isaac's journey is marked by the digging of wells. Abraham had altars, Isaac had wells, they both had altars, but there's a similar concept there. There are at least four, may I suggest, significant wells mentioned in Genesis 26. Well, that, that's indeed the case, but I I suggest that they're significant. They serve as milestones connecting the dots of Isaac's journey of faith, even as they are named for thematic events which commemorate the purposes and providence of God throughout his days. These signal themes chart the course of Isaac's journey in light of the covenant. Now, just a note on wells and their symbolic importance in Scripture. Well springs, you know, wells of water are are uh, pictures to communicate to us truths of the gospel all through the scriptures. Thus, it's no accident that this was something that attended Isaac's experience. It attended the experience of others as well. Wellsprings of water are symbolic markers throughout the scripture. We have witnessed Hagar, do you remember, introduced to Yahweh himself at a well of water in chapter 21, verse 19. Kids, do you remember what the name of the well became right there? What did Hagar name the well? What did the well become known as? Oh, say it louder. The well of the living God that sees me. That is correct. A very significant spring of water that became known and memorialized in the account of Scripture and in the experience of the people of the time. A well named for what it represents. The well of the living God who sees me. Was the living God... Did the living God see Isaac? He sure did. He named his wells accordingly as well. And we see a record of, God's experience, of his experiences even as he commemorated these moments by naming these springs of water by, uh, accordingly. In the case of Hagar, this happened twice. Once she was visited by the angel of the Lord on her way to Shur, and there she was given prophecy as well. A spring of water in the wilderness was provided to her. Of course, Isaac's descendants will encounter springs of water springing forth, gushing forth from stone itself upon their return to this very land. Exodus 17, verse 6. Again, a picture of wellspring, supernatural supply in the wilderness of our own sin. And then this corresponds to the fulfillment text in John chapter 4. One day Jesus will be asked one of the most important questions in history at the site of a well that was associated, and she recognizes much, with Isaac's covenant son, Jacob. So here you have the picture of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She's drawing water from a historically, geographically, culturally, traditionally important well, this well of Jacob. And she asks one of the most important questions in all of history. She probably didn't even know it. She says to Jesus, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Kids, what's the answer? Is Jesus greater than Jacob? Yes. Amen. He gave us, she goes on to say, the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's testifying to the greatness of Jacob, and that testimony endured to that day. Jesus, who was he? The true covenant son, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, in the covenant line. This was the true covenant son. He answers her. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. John 4, 14. That's an introduction and an overview of the significance of wellsprings of water. But now let's look more carefully at Isaac's journey and see what we can learn from this snapshot in covenant history. Here's a heading. The legacy of Isaac is marked by wells. And here's three major themes. Trial, number two, blessing, and number three, covenant. The legacy of Isaac is marked by wells, 
that memorialize trial, blessing, and covenant. First of all, trial. Isaac's life is marked by testing. Trials of various sorts. We mentioned in an introduction to him in a prior message that one of the key themes and experiences in the life of Isaac is conflict. There's conflict between him and his neighbors. We read of that in the text, in our context today. There's conflict between him and his family members, between him and his wives at different times. There's conflict between his sons, Jacob and Esau, our bitter, bitter rivals. There's conflict that surrounds him all over the place. Nevertheless, God works in spite of this conflict. Thus, the aim of this message, uh, the feature of the grace of God in spite of the frailty of his servants, we could extend it to include in spite of the conflict that attended the way of his servant. Two wells were named after these kind, this kind of experience, Esek and Sitna. Esek means quarreling. It means a strife or and uh, uh, sitna is similar. It means hostility, tensions, animosity, conflict, war, if you will, quarreling and hostility. These two wells commemorate or they, they mark this uh, experience in Isaac's life, difficulty, trial. Now, this uh, fighting amongst the people there and conflict over the wells and their ownership wasn't the only trial that's listed in our text today. In 26.1, I'll remind you of this circumstance. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So Itzak and Sitna could refer to trials, and among them including not just this conflict that's represented by tensions interpersonally, but also conflict that is brought on by famine. So we recalled in our last message from this passage that this ended up being a providential occasion. God will use trials to set up the circumstances to proclaim something of himself. And that happens in our text today. In other words, you could look at it this way. Think of famine biblically. A couple words on famine. There are two purposes primarily that I'd like to reinforce for, for famine in God's intention in this kind of circumstance today. The first is judgment. The second is to set up uh, the magnification of his name and magnify him as provider. So one is judgment, the other to magnify him as provider. Think of the times where famine was a judgment of God. We've remarked one, on one of them in our sermon last Sunday. When we were talking about the historical background of Psalm 117, we spoke of Solomon and his prayer of dedication at the temple. One of the occasions for the temple dedication was foreigners. When foreigners would obey the command to worship and extol Yahweh, Solomon's prayer was, may they come to this place, meet you, may, they change, may you change their heart, may you grant their requests, may they be counted among your people. It's basically a prophetic prayer of Gentile inclusion. But there are other occasions that Solomon saw the temple is fit for, and among them, drought and famine. And he says, when you visit your people with your disciplinary hand of trial, in the case of drought and famine, may they turn from their sin. May they put their iniquity behind them, the reason for your judgment falling upon them, and may they cry out to you in this place and find your favor once again. Famine is often an instrument of God's tool to correct, to chastise, and to bring judgment when His law has been broken. Now, secondly, though, there's another purpose as well. Famine sometimes exists to magnify His sovereignty as the true provider. Think of a number of famines in Scripture that fell into this category, including our text today. Why was there a famine in the land? Well, it was to set up a distinct proclamation of God's provision in spite of the lack of man's means. In verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. He sowed, so I'm going to become a farmer. So he plants seed. With little experience, prior just a sojourner, a nomad in the land, we don't have any record of Abraham planting crops, but now we have a farmer uh, starting his you know, crop, Isaac. And he's doing so, he picked a great year. A famine is throughout the whole land, a famine that required him to move. But what happens? God blesses his crop and it produces a hundredfold, becomes the envy, literally, of his neighbors. Do you see the purpose of this famine? God instituted this hardship to magnify the truth that he is, the, that he is the sovereign provider. 
This is the same uh, perspective. This is the same concept that God deployed during the wilderness wanderings. Why were the people of God, uh, in part, or one reason, why were the people of God commissioned, you know, commanded to wander through the wilderness for 40 years without even having the opportunity to stay long enough to plant any crops anywhere in this wasteland of their wanderings? Well, it was in part to show that when God supplied daily bread and water from a rock, this sustenance in the wilderness magnified him, that he is a sovereign provider. Likewise, in the case of Joseph, what do we have in the record? Seven years of famine. Why was that famine coming upon the land? Well, again, one reason was to demonstrate that the wisdom of the servant of God as something of a type of God's anointed one would uh, gather the wisdom from the Holy Scripture, listen to the voice of the Spirit, and would gather into the storehouses. And so there would come a time when the man who was a convicted follower of the God of Abraham would be the only source of food in the land. And the testimony of God as sole provider would go forth to the most powerful at that time empire the world had known. So you see, God has purposes in trial. He has purposes to bring consequences and judgment on sin at times, that we might turn to Him and repent. And He has purposes to magnify His sovereignty as the true bread and true source of living water and the true source of daily bread as well. Does this relate to our day? Is anyone, have you heard anyone complain or be stressed out, anxious, or worried about supply lines disrupted due to COVID situation? You know, our... The threat of pandemic has caused certain policies to be enacted the globe over that has disrupted supply chains. Um, there's other policies that are in place that tend to centralize food supply. Could, if we learn from history at all, be a catastrophic in consequence. It's easier to corrupt a monolithic food supply than it is to corrupt one that is diversified. So you see in our day, the opportunity, and right now, even in our land, and we could really use some rain. There's some drought in central Minnesota right at this time. Well, so you see in our own experience that we can relate something to the idea of drought and famine. And so the threat of these things, how ought we to respond? Well, we can learn from Isaac's experience that we ought to cling in faith to the God who uses trials as an instrument of his correction, as an instrument of his judgment, and as a stage upon which to display his sovereign power to provide. Who do you trust to provide for you? The supermarket, your paycheck, your boss, your employer, a government policy, welfare, a program, an entitlement, and so on and so forth. There's a million safety nets, it seems like, safety nets under safety nets in our society today. But if you trust in those and not in the God who ultimately provides, you have nothing but an idol underneath an idol underneath an idol in which you place your trust. So Isaac is a good example for us of someone who learned as witnessed by the name of his first two wells, Esek and Sitna, that God has purposes in conflict, in difficulty, trial, even quarreling and hostility. Now, what's another conflict that he faced? Well, this conflict of famine, the uh, trial of famine, moved him to relocate. In verse 6, we find him settling in Gerar. And now we see another situation it's under fear of man. Let's label this. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. In the original language, that laughing there is a theme as well. Isaac's name means laughter. And uh, commentators have said it this way, Isaac was being himself. He was playfully enjoying and it was very obvious in the interchange of the couple here and the way that they were interacting with one another that they were more than just friends, you know, or uh, brother and sister. They were laughing together. And Bimelech, you know, light bulb. He calls Isaac and says, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Do you see? Here, this trial uh, and the temptation to fear man has led Isaac to repeat the sins of the father. I mean, it's an identical situation, right down to the name of the king that represented the threat uh, in the land, right down to the situation, oh, possibly he might die, right down to the reason he might die, a lovely bride that could be coveted by his neighbors. 
and right down to the strategy to avoid potential uh, harm. Well, I'm going to lie and say he's my sister. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife. You would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Conflict, trial, hostility, quarreling. And, among, and in the context, the fear of man and Isaac's response. Now, let me ask you a question. The kids, you can respond to this. This might be a little bit difficult, so adults, you can chime in as well. Isaac is headed to Gerar. There's a famine in the land. Where would you say he ought to visit first? Where is the first place that you would recommend Isaac visit as he enters Gerar? Kind of a challenging question. I'll give you a hint. Chapter 21, 33 gives us the answer. So if you want to turn there, feel free. Does anyone have a suggestion while we're turning there? The well, it's a good guess. I would suggest another place first. Let's look in 2133. Same place, Beersheba. This is in Gerar. Similar circumstances. Even the same guy's name is used, Abimelech, to represent the king of that time. And uh, there, the occasion had been a dispute about a well of water. So, yeah, that's correct as so far as that goes. Notice verse 32. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Who made a covenant? Abraham and King Abimelech. Same, similar circumstances. But the tables have turned at this point. Abimelech is now submitting to the greater authority, namely Abraham. It says, Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So perhaps you know the answer now. I submit Isaac should have gone to the tamarisk tree. Why? Because that was an altar type of tree. That tree stood as a testimony that God gave Abraham victory through conflict, even though there was reason, it would seem in the natural, to fear man. Abraham ends up being the greater party. God blesses him. God protects him. God is his sole provider. And God compels the people of the land to seek Abraham's favor. The tables turn. Abraham did not want the next generation to forget this. So he planted a tamarisk tree, something that would live beyond him, so that when Isaac, if he should venture into Gerar, he would go there first and realize the testimony of his forefather, that there is no good reason to fear man with your faith perspective corrected. After all, I have proof in my own lineage and legacy that God has intervened on my father's behalf. Here's an important lesson. Children of Christian homes, listen closely. You will repeat the legacy of your parents. You will repeat the legacy of your parents. It's just a matter of which legacy. Isaac at times repeated the legacy of the sinfulness of his father. At other times, gloriously and redemptively so, he followed the legacy of his father's repentance and faith. Which will it be, young people? Uh, people of any age, really. Which will it be? Will you follow the legacy of the sinfulness of prior generations? Or will, will you follow the legacy of our forebears, if you don't have them in your own family, in the family of God, of our faith? Which will it be? That is a question for all of us. And to take seriously. And, of course, the application is this. Young people... As you branch out, as you cross that bridge from dependence in the home to independence in life, the first place you should stop is the tamarisk tree. Sounds a little weird, doesn't it? But I think you understand in light of this, the tamarisk tree represents proof positive that God has intervened in his grace has visited my family. And I need to honor that, acknowledge that, and not forget that altar. And that way I honor God, I honor my parents, and I continue the legacy of repentance and gospel faithfulness. Go to the tamarisk tree if you enter Gerar. Go to the tamarisk tree if you enter a new phase of life. Go to the tamarisk tree, if you will, when you enter a new family and so forth. That is the message. Finally, there's conflict <coughs> between foreign enemies. We see this in verses 
uh, 14 or 19 and 21 especially. And this is where the names of the wells come from. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring of water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, uh, this water is ours. And you see there's tension here. So here's there's foreign enemies. But Isaac's attitude is a little different than you might expect. Instead of picking a fight or defending these wells, which were legitimately his, instead he chooses to turn the other cheek past, so to speak, and moves on. Now, this isn't the only source of strife. There's also strife in Isaac's own family. We've read this before in the experience of Jacob and Esau. We'll pick up more of that later. But the last verse in our passage today also reminds us of this fact. When Esau was 40 years old, he took these two wives, right, from foreign women. And in so doing, he made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah, yet another source of family strife. Thus we have, marked in these first two wells, something of the legacy of Isaac, trial, quarreling hostility, Esek and Sitna. Major point number two, it gets better. A second mark of Isaac's legacy. Isaac's legacy is marked by blessing. And this would correspond to the name Rehoboth, and it means broad places. Verse 22, speaking of Isaac, And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called his name Rehoboth, saying, from not, For now the Lord has made room for us. That's the uh, word means room or broad places, plenty of room, prosperity. And we, he says, shall be fruitful in the land. A second mark of Isaac's legacy is the blessing of God, the ray of both broad places, the fruitfulness in the land. And again, the famine set up the occasion to make this even more incredible. First of all, we see Rehoboth uh, in the experience of Isaac in the fact that he settled in the land. He had a more permanent residence and permanent presence than even his father had. Notice two references. Verse 8, so Isaac settled in Gerar when the men of the place asked him about his wife and so forth. We read that already. Another reference, verse 17, So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. So we see him digging wells, planting crops, and settling down. And so this is a step forward in the fulfillment of the Genesis 15 land promise prophecies. Do you remember? God had cut a covenant, sworn to his own harm to fulfill it, with Abraham, Isaac's father, and said, All these regions, you know, I will give you this land, I will make you great. But there's also prophecy and that covenant-cutting ceremony. And the prophecy was this. This is not going to come to pass in fullness for 400 plus years. Why? Because the fullness, the iniquity of the Amorites must be complete. And then after 400 years of slavery, which was prophesied by the mouth of God to his servant Abraham at the time, then and only then will your people return to lay full claim to the land promises. Let me ask you a question by way of application. Are there things that you have, that you lay claim to as a Christian, that you might have to wait a long time or not see in fullness in your life before they come to pass? Absolutely. It took quite a step of faith for Isaac to take one more baby step in the direction of settlement in the land, uh, knowing that he would not lay full claim to it as he recalled the word of God for another four centuries. God's plans are bigger than your experience. Now in our day, we just measure things of value typically existentially. That means according to our experience. Why would we pursue something, invest in something, or work on something that won't survive us? I won't be alive to appreciate it. In a cavalier way, how many people have said this kind of thing? You know, you'll see the RV going by, and in the back it says, my children's inheritance. That's existentialism related to the family estate. Hey, you know what? My kids, they kind of annoy me anyways, so I'm going to spend the inheritance on this half a million dollar IV and live it up in my golden years. Why should I, you know, uh, continue to deprive myself of possible luxuries when I'm not going to be there for my kids to experience that anyways? They'll be, you know, long after I'm dead and so forth. Our time preference is sometimes a term that's used, becomes shorter and shorter and shorter the more our perspective is shaped by our base fleshly desires and the less we move from and the more we move from the biblical worldview that the scriptures give us. 
The scriptures say that your duty to the Lord and his kingdom is so important that it could never be subsumed in your own experience. Salvation is far more than just you experiencing fullness and happiness in the short existence, this breath and this vapor that is your life. God has ordained in the building of his church and the proclamation of the gospel and the kingdom of God advancing that it happened generationally and incrementally over time. Right now, Jesus Christ has a project on his hands. He is subduing his enemies under his feet, and each one is being gathered up to reinforce his footstool. And as he does so, he does so over time and in time and over a long period of time, and he does so to the accumulation of his magnified glory. Are you willing to be patient and to endure in this if you don't get to see the fullness of what you labor for in your lifetime? Are you, are you willing to be patient and to endure with this perspective as it seems like your world, maybe personally, maybe culturally, is fraught with nothing but strife, hostility, and trial? And if you need a place to turn to reinforce your encouragement and strength in this regard, Paul tells us to turn to these pages right here. And we read this recently in Romans 15. These scriptures were written for your instruction and for your endurance, for your edification, and for the harmony of the saints, and ultimately for the glory of God. And so we have this also in the testimony of Isaac. He's settling even though the full claim to the land is yet on the horizon, at least in manifest form. He's sowing, and as he does so, he reaps a hundredfold in spite of famine. In 12, again, we read, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. He literally became the envy of his neighbors as the Lord blessed him. These are the prosperous places, the broad places. This is the blessing. This is the Rehoboth that he named his well for. Now, how did he respond? Well, may I point out a clear repentance in the text you might otherwise miss. Something happened in Isaac's soul after God prospered him in spite of famine. And to help us understand this, let me remind you of Abraham's experience. Abraham goes into Gerar, just like Isaac, a timid sojourner. But later on, Beersheba is named for an oath that a king begged him on his knees, so to speak, to make with him, submitting to Abraham's greater authority. What happened in between? So what was the great change in Abraham's faith to move him from a position of timid submission to the worldly authorities, to confident boldness, to proclaim the word over the principalities and powers of his day. It was the birth of the covenant son. When God fulfilled his promises in the birth of Isaac, it changed Abraham. It's a different man. He went from a timid sojourner to a prince of God among them. I suggest the same thing is happening in our text. Isaac goes from a timid sojourner to a prince of God among them. And what is the occasion for this change? It is the Rehoboth. It is the broad places. When God sovereignly intervenes in the midst of a famine and blesses his crops a hundredfold, suddenly the awareness of the power and the purposes and the sovereignty of God dawns upon Isaac and he begins to change. And how do we know this? Because he takes steps of clear repentance. Verse 17 and following. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And whereas he was afraid of the men before, now he actually takes a step of faith. What does he do? 18. He dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father. And the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the names his father had given them. Well, this takes a real confidence and boldness to do this. You see, those wells were legitimately Isaac's upon sworn covenant by a representative leader of the land of a prior generation. Now, the descendants of Abimelech, or whoever they were, the people of the land, had broken covenant and filled them up. And now in a statement, in a decision, in a, in a, a choice of boldness and a firm course of action, Isaac returns to the positive legacy of his father and redigs those wells. Takes dominion over what is rightfully his and, a, and, and his family's by naming them. 
It brings up the you know, biblical concept of naming. It's to ascribe by your vested authority the identity and purpose of the thing. And so he names these wells according to the original names of his father. This could only happen if Isaac had repented of his timidity and if God had changed his heart by miraculous intervention. And so it happened. And even though this created conflict, he continued resolute in building upon the legacy and foundation of covenant affirmation, covenant promises to, uh, that were made to his father. In repentance, he exercised dominion by subduing the earth, redigging the wells. In repentance, he exercised dominion as an agent of God's word and God's will by naming them according to the names that Isaac had previously given. He was doing, acting and living according to the covenant arrangement that God had spoken decisively to the generations before. This were, these were actions of bold resolve. The tables had turned. God's servant had repented of his timidity among the foreigners and began to act in conviction and obedience, though a peacemaker, among his and the enemies of an almighty God. Final point this morning, the legacy of Isaac is marked by trial, by blessing, and thirdly, by covenant. Now, a big change happened in Isaac's life, as we mentioned. God sovereignly intervened and returned him to the point of reference, which provided perspective for his life, his identity, and his course of action. And that was the word of God, the covenant that was made to him through his father. And this is reiterated twice in our text. God appears to him twice. Of course, the first appearing is in verse 2. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. I will bless you. And to you and your offspring, I will give these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So assurances of covenant secured to Isaac on the obedience of another, namely his father. So do you think Isaac was remembering this when he lied about his wife saying that she was his sister? Of course not. But do you think he was remembering this when he began to redig the wells that were unjustly filled in that his father had established in the land? You bet. Notice in verse 24. After Isaac's steps of faith in this regard, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And what do you guys think Isaac did after God appeared to him the second time? What do you guys think he did? I'm going to give you a hint. Kids, he built something. What do you think he built? Oh, yeah, over here. Tower to heaven? Not quite. Anybody else have a suggestion? An altar. An altar. Theo is on the money. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So we have an altar, residence, and a well, all to commemorate this occasion. Later, that well becomes known as Sheba. This is covenant. Sheba means Oaths or seven, seven being fullness, completion, certainty, everything, the total. He called it Sheba, and the place became known, and it's a good idea since it, would already, it was already known by Beersheba prior to Isaac, basically reinforced the name of that place. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So here, in 24 and following, we have the covenant reiterated, strengthened, emphasized, God repeating these truths to Isaac, next in the generation. We have a repentant Isaac who is listening this time. And now, you know, before he failed to visit the tamarisk tree that Abram had set up as a testimony to him and those who would follow of his faithfulness in the land of his sojournings, but you know what? He goes back, as it were, to the tamarisk tree and furthermore sets up an altar of his own. Young people, I give you a charge a little earlier to go to the tamarisk tree that is to recognize the evidence of God's grace giving you Christian instruction in your home, if that's been your experience. Now I give you a second charge, to plant a tamarisk tree. I give you this charge, to go forth in your life and to build an altar. 
If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that His blood has washed away your sins, I challenge you to make that a featured place in your mind and in your actions. How do we do this? Well, men of God, we talk about this a lot, don't we, in men's group. We do this, among other ways, through family worship. At family worship, when men and husbands uh, gather their family together, they plant a tamarisk tree, so to speak. They build an altar, so to speak, when they open up the Word of God. They remind daily as God gives them grace to their family. Maybe it's just their wife. If you're single, I don't care. Just do it for yourself or in faith of whoever God might have you influence in the future. I don't care if people are over to eat. That's some of our most precious family worship times. But it's a good application. I challenge you. Plant that tamarisk tree. Build that altar as you open the scriptures and proclaim that herein is the fixed point of our faith. Herein is the foundation of our hope. Herein is, is proof of God's faithfulness. Herein is salvation proclaimed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac. So this place becomes known as Beersheba, which means the place of oath-taking, kind of. Sheba means oaths or seven, and two different covenants took place there. One, the reiteration of God's covenant to Isaac. Secondly, once again, the, the people, the principalities and powers of the day, come groveling on their knees to seek the favor of the prince of God among them. Verse 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? Ah, right, aren't I the reject? You know, you can almost see that Isaac is setting up the glorification of God in spite of the frailty of the servants and so forth by bringing out this point. Hey, don't you remember you told me to move away because you despise me? Why are you returning? And so we see their answer, 28. They said, we see plainly that God has been with you. You are a prince of God among us, in so many words. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. If you can't beat them, we better join them, the unbeliever says. And he comes to seek favor of the man who now obviously is blessed of the Lord. That you will do us no harm. So these are the terms they suggest, verse 29. Just as we have not touched you, a little disingenuous there, and have done to you nothing but good and sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. There again. You see in the testimony of even the pagans and unbelievers that there is a confession of this truth. It is obvious and beyond denial that those who live in covenant relationship with the Lord eventually have a testimony of God's favor among them that even the blind, lost, and pagan must recognize and will. If not in this life, in the next. But don't be surprised, saints, if in the course of your life, your simple choice to have a large family to the glory of God, which is, you know, one of the distinctives of our church, I always say, not necessarily by design, but more by default. How many opportunities have you moms had in Costco to witness to somebody as to the purpose and the behavior of your children I mean, let's be honest, I always say the bar is set pretty low for behavior, so it doesn't take too much for your family that has a semblance of biblical order, at least, to shine a little bit. And when people ask you the reason for the kids in your quiver, <laughs> you can tell them the reason for that is my conviction. Children are a gift and a blessing made in the image of God. And those difficult and fraught with trial, nevertheless, by God's grace, I'm thankful for a day when my kids can be relatively behaved. I know in the end it's worth it. This is just one example of how you can shine to the unbeliever in a simple life decision of seeking to have a family of children that follow the Lord as you follow him. So this is an example and application that corresponds to this final point or this final marker in Isaac's legacy. Remember, we've charted his experience, his biography, according to the Wells. The first two were named for trial. The second, third, excuse me, was named for blessing. And the fourth was named for covenant. The Abimelech Treaty proves one more thing. You see what happens in verse 30? So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way. They departed from, his, uh, from him in peace. It demonstrates one more thing. And this is why Psalm 23 was our worship text this morning. Do you see it was quite literally the case that God prepared for Isaac a table in the presence of his enemies. If you ever wondered what that verse means, well, God will uh, do amazing things through the convicted servant who walks in faith with him. 
even at times spreading the table in the presence of his enemies, even filling his cup and allowing it to run over. Now, Isaac was not exemplary in every moment of his life, but he did exemplify the grace of God. And there came a time when that grace was evident in increasing favor, even in a pagan wicked world, so that Isaac was able to invite the ungodly over to eat, as it were, in a covenant meal and share, presumably, in that fellowship, the testimony of salvation in Yahweh's promises of a coming Messiah alone. Think about it this week as you meditate on this passage. What did Abimelech and Isaac talk about while they sat down for that covenant meal? I'm sure Isaac preached the gospel in so many words, prophetically, all, the whole time. Abimelech may have gone away from that table a Gentile redeemed if he placed faith in the same Messiah that Isaac was expecting and knew would come from his line. Our next communion service, first Sunday of the month, will be an invitation by a greater king still to join him at his table. If you are welcome at the table of the Lord, it's because you have sought the favor of the Almighty and you have found his favor in the forgiveness of your sins and in the invitation to communion, to friendship with an almighty and holy God. Isaac pictured this in his experience with the pagan king of old. And yes, God's grace and gospel are powerful enough to cause kings and people in authority to bow the knee and bend to his sovereignty and seek his favor. But it only happens one way, when the gospel of the unassailable forever power, glory, authority to absolutely judge to the nth degree and to the particular case, the broken law of God for every individual who's ever lived. And the only way to escape this judgment is that someone is judged in your, in your case, in your place. And of course, the one who is judged in our place is Jesus Christ, the son of Isaac, to come, who has made a way for us to join at this same covenant feast, as it were, and an even greater, an even greater example of it yet to come at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us close in prayer and thankfulness for these promises of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the message of hope in the scriptures that is woven even in the experiences of the patriarchs of old. I pray, Lord, insofar as your word has been rightly divided and proclaimed today, that it would do a great work on the inside of our hearts to answer the prayer that Paul himself prayed that we would be instructed, encouraged, have endurance, harmony, and that you would be glorified all the while as your church is reinforced by the perspective of Holy Scripture. Lord, if there are any in this room who as yet are the pagan foreigner, if there are any in the sound of this gospel message being preached who have not bowed the knee and sought to be in right covenant relationship with an almighty God, repenting of their sins, placing faith in the mercy of Jesus Christ who invites them to his table at the cost of his broken body and his blood, I pray that you would move them to repent and believe. As the gospel goes forth with authority, commanding the lost to turn from their sins and to place faith in the authoritative and beautiful, the king and steadfastly loving so, almighty I am Yahweh, the Lord, was revealed in flesh, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who accomplished the terms of covenant to make this reunion possible. Help us, Lord, to be reinforced to this end that we might glorify you in spite of our own frailties to the praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.